Welcome to Inside the Bible. I am Father Kenneth Baker, editor of the Homiletic and Pastor Review, and we are going through the books of the Bible briefly to give an explanation of them to bring out the content and the meaning of each book of the Bible to assist you in your reading of the Bible. In our last program, we got as far as the first book of Samuel. We're in the historical books which is the first part of the Bible. So I recommend to all of you, if you have it handy, to get out your copy of the Bible and put it on your lap and open up to the books of Samuel. We're going to start now with the second book of Samuel, which is towards the beginning of your Bible, and it is the tenth book in the, in the Old Testament. We saw yesterday that um, after the death of Saul, David became king in Hebron, and then the people elected him, and he, and he goes to Jerusalem. He captures Jerusalem, and he makes Jerusalem as his, as his capital. The first part of the second book of Samuel deals with the expansion of the kingdom and the military victories of David. The second part of the book of, uh, second book of Samuel has to do with the family problems of King David. The, one of the main problems there in, in his life was adultery. He sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and he brings her to the palace and has relations with her, and she conceives a child. And when he finds out that, then he arranges to have her husband, Uriah, killed out on the battlefield. As a result of that, the prophet Nathan comes to him and denounces him for this. He repents of it, uh, but he has to pay the price. There's a tremendous punishment imposed upon him, and the prophet tells him that his his family and his descendants are going to be punished because of his sin. But he's never going to be rejected. And one of the most important texts in the whole Old Testament with regard to King David is in this book, the second book of Samuel, the seventh chapter, where the Lord uh, tells David that um, David had intended to build a house or a temple for the Lord. And so there's kind of a play on words here. And the Lord tells David, he says, you're, you're not going to build a house for me, namely a temple, but I'm going to build a house for you, and uh, your descendants will sit on this throne forever. And one of your descendants will always be on the throne of David. This is, has great significance as far as the coming of Christ our Lord, who is recognized as the son of David and the Messiah. So that text from 2 Samuel 7 keeps showing up later on in the books of the prophets all the way down to the time of Christ. That's a very important text. But what happens is that there's turmoil in the family of David. His children fight amongst each other. One of them kills another. His son Absalom tries to uh, take the kingdom away from him and then Absalom is killed. So at the end of the book of uh, Samuel, you have uh, a certain amount of turmoil. His son has been killed. But David is getting old, and it's time for his successor. There's a struggle, as there often is in these families. But it turns out that his son Solomon, whom he'd had by uh, Bathsheba after her husband was, uh, was killed, 
and eventually he marries Bathsheba and she has another son named Solomon. And so in the first part of the book of Kings, we have the account of how the kingdom uh, and, and the kingship is conferred upon King Solomon. So uh, then we, that brings us into the two books of Kings, one Kings, two Kings. And if you have an older Bible, like Douay uh, Reims version of the Bible, these books are called one, two, three, four Kings. What we now call one and two Samuel used to be called one and two Kings. And, the, and, and what we now call one and two Kings was at that time three and four. Sometimes that gets a little confusing, but for now we're talking about one and two Kings. So here's a significant quote there uh, in 1 Kings 3.12. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, the Lord says to Solomon, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. Remember, he was given uh, opportunity to ask the Lord what he wished for, and instead of asking for wealth and power, he asked for wisdom. And wisdom was given to him, great wisdom, so you have the sayings of Solomon, and we, it's part of our language, uh, the wisdom of Solomon. It's brought out very graphically in the story of the two harlots who have children, and they're sleeping in the same bed. One of the babies uh, is, dies, there's one is living, and uh, both women claim the baby is theirs. They come before Solomon, and they both make their case. They claim that that's their baby. And so Solomon says, well, one of his soldiers, take a sword, cut the baby in half, and give half to each of the women. At that, the real mother says, no, don't kill the baby. Give it to the other woman. And Solomon says, aha, the one who wants to spare the life of the baby must be the mother. Whereas the other one said, go ahead and kill him. So he awards the uh, baby to the real mother. So that's a sign of the wisdom of Solomon. However, as time went by, his kingdom expanded. It was the greatest expanse of the kingdom of Israel under Solomon. Uh, he fell into a certain amount of, uh, of worship of uh, false gods because of the many wives that he had. And uh, he also ends up being punished in his children. So that when Solomon dies, his son uh, is kind of a tyrant and brings it about that there's a division in the kingdom between the north and the south. And that's how you get uh, the, uh, that's how you get the two kingdoms, uh, Israel in the north. Remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel. So the, the 10 tribes are in the north, up near Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus uh, was, where Jesus grew up. And then the southern part is Judea, down around Jer Jerusalem. So you have the two kingdoms, Israel and Judea. And for the rest of the historical books, there's conflict between these, even though they're brothers, there's conflict between these two parts of the kingdom. So the, uh, in the, the second book of Kings, the first book of Kings then begins to explain uh, the development of these uh, kingships of Israel and, uh, and Judea and gives a list of all the kings. Now, this, this kingship went on for, for about 400 years, from around 970 to about 587 when they were conquered by the Babylonians. The judgment of Scripture is that basically the kingship was a disaster because one of the things that they were responsible to do was to defend the covenant of the Lord and the temple, the temple worship, the purity of the temple worship, and all these kings, they fell into idolatry of one form or another. Only two of them 
turn out to be praised by the author of, uh, of 1 and 2 Kings. And those two are, one is Hezekiah uh, in uh, the 8th century and Josiah in the 7th century. Uh, one just before the fall of, of Samariah up in the north and the other one before the fall of Jerusalem in the south. But, the, but for the most part, these kings were, uh, were not very good. And there's a kind of a formula that, uh, the, that the sacred author gives that they did not walk in the way of their father, David. David is held up as the ideal king who worshipped God, who uh, made it instrumental to establish the, the temple which his son Solomon built. But David was faithful to God. When he sinned, he repented. He was, David was the author of many of the Psalms. He was faithful to God, and God blessed him in many ways. So David also received the promise from the Lord that one of his descendants, one of his descendants from the house of David would always sit on his throne. That is in the memory of the, of the uh, Israelites all the way through in both kingdoms. The kingdom in the north, uh, eventually, over a period of about 200 years, is overrun by the Assyrians. And we'll see something about that when we talk about the, the prophets, because they fell into idol worship and they were punished by God by being overrun by the Assyrians. The ten tribes were carried into uh, exile and they pretty much disappeared from history. That's in the year 722 before Christ. The little kingdom of Judea, which is from the house of David, that survived for another 140 years or so until the Babylonians destroyed them in 587. So you have in the second book of Kings the account of the king of Israel and the king of, of uh, Judah, Judea. Sometimes they're in alliances, sometimes they're fighting against each other. And in these, in these two books, you have the account of the uh, first uh, kind of charismatic prophets, namely Elijah and Elisha. So that the Spirit of God raises up these individuals who remind the king and they remind the people of their obligation to be faithful to the covenant that is the Ten Commandments, especially the worship of the only God. And they denounce sin and betrayal of God and of the covenant. So both Elijah and Elisha are wonder workers, uh, making the Jordan stop and doing a number of uh, remarkable things, raising people from the dead. They are, and they're kind of like the conscience of the kings. They keep going after the kings all the time, which was very dangerous in those days because the king had the right of life and death over any of his subjects. And for a prophet to stand up and rebuke the king was a dangerous thing. But they were always told by the Lord, don't worry, don't be afraid, because I am with you. They can't do anything to you. They can't hurt you. They can't kill you because I am with you. So, after the fall of uh, the northern kingdom, then the, the second book of Kings details the various kings of Judea. Uh, say Hezekiah was around the year uh, 700, and then Josiah comes around 630, something like that before Christ. Those two tended to get rid of the idol worship in their country and uh, to promote the true worship of the Lord. Especially in 622 under Josiah, when they discovered a copy of the law, we think it was probably the book of Deuteronomy, and this was read to the people, and they decided to commit themselves to the traditional worship in the temple, 
and to abide by the terms of the covenant. At the end of the book of Kings, we find a lot of intrigue. The, the, the successors, the, the three kings that followed uh, Josiah around the year 600 before Christ, they were petty tyrants. They were liars and betrayers. They betrayed the Babylonians. So finally the Babylonians had enough of these people and they came there and besieged the city uh, and, and the, the city fell in 587. It was a horrible thing that happened of uh, people uh, eating their own children and so forth as they starved them out. Eventually, the Babylonians overran Jerusalem and totally destroyed it. That is, they had this magnificent temple which was one of the wonders of the world and tremendous walls and palaces and a, it was a magnificent city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians completely destroyed it they took all the leading people, tens of thousands of them, carried them off to Babylon into captivity. They left a few peasants there to work the land. It was a desolate area, nothing left. And that is the conclusion of the uh, second book of Kings. Now, when you read this kind of history, it's not like reading secular history. Secular history tends to give you the facts, and depending who the historian is, he may have some theories about it, but they don't go in much to motives. But the sacred authors are concerned about why this happened. And over and over again, they remind us when you're reading is that what happened to Israel and what happened to Judea was sin because they, they sinned against the covenant. They were unfaithful to God and they were warned again and again by the prophets. They still persisted in their sin. Therefore, God destroyed them. He wiped the, the ten tribes of the north off the face of the earth a few survivors there that eventually became the Samaritans when the Assyrians brought strange people in there. And then finally in 587 down in Jerusalem, the total destruction of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, the race is in effect wiped out except for a few. This idea, they're having the problem, the remnant. A few go off into exile into uh, Babylon and there they stay for 50 years. And that's from about that's uh, from 587 before Christ down to 537. So about 50 years they're in captivity in Babylon. And uh, the, during that time we have some of revising of the writings of the Old Testament and some, some prophecies. But that's kind of like the end of the story. And the overall evaluation of the kingship was in, it was basically a, a disaster as an, as an earthly uh, power. Now, the second books of Kings, if we move on to uh, two more historical books, are called the books of uh, Chronicles. The books of Chronicles are written by a different author, and uh, it's a very schematic presentation of the history of Israel. What Chronicles does is go back over the same history of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. At the beginning, the author gives a summary of the history of Israel from the creation of God down to the time of David. Then he gives an account of the kingship of David and his son Solomon. But this is, uh, he's, he's, he's presenting a, a, a narrow picture. He, for example, the chronicler does not say anything about David sinning with Bathsheba and the, the, the failings and sins of uh, David and Solomon, which are recounted in the two books of Kings, are passed over in the books of Chronicles. 
the, and the book of Chronicles is concerned about the worship in the temple and the centralization of the worship in the temple. It uh, probably was written by somebody connected with, with the temple. But the basic idea of, of, uh, of Chronicles is that it goes back over these kings and it uh, totally ignores the kings in the north. The kings in Israel, the 200 years from uh, uh, Jeroboam, from uh, around 930 down to 722, he just completely ignores that. He's not concerned about the north. And why is that? Because they were like heretics. They had broken away from the true worship of God in Jerusalem. Therefore, he wasn't concerned about them. He was concerned about the true worship of God in the temple in Jerusalem. And so each of the kings is evaluated in the terms uh, of whether or not he defended the true worship of God in the temple. So he goes through each one of the kings and uh, has a pretty negative judgment on all of them, except for the two that I mentioned is Hezekiah and Josiah, until it finally reaches the end that uh, God is kind of has it up to here with these people, and he decides to uh, teach them a lesson. He gave many opportunities to repent, and they refused to repent. So uh, he sends the Babylonians. The Babylonians surround the city, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, and then completely destroy the city. But when you're reading these histories of the of the Bible, you're reading theological history, and the the, the sacred author gives you the reason why this happens. And the, the same thing in the book of Chronicles. So it's not like secular history. It's, it's a theology of history, giving the reasons why these things happen. We don't know a lot of things have one war starts or some king or some president gets assassinated or something. Often nobody knows really why it happened. But the, the sacred authors of the Bible, they know why these things happen. In their thinking is God makes use of secondary instruments and causes in order to affect his will. An underlying principle in these books of history in the Old Testament is God is the master of history. Nothing happens in history that he doesn't wish in one way or another. He permits it. Some things he directly wills. Sin he never wills. But he permits it for his own purposes. Often purposes hidden from us and very mysterious. But as far as the sacred authors are concerned, the destruction of Israel in the north and the destruction of Judea and Jerusalem in the south was a result of sin and the fact that the, uh, the, the Judeans were not faithful to the covenant. Therefore, God wiped out their kingdom, sent them off into exile. But a, a key notion from now on is the idea of the remnant the remnant. That is a small group that always remains faithful to the covenant and faithful to the Lord. That remnant is located now in Babylon in captivity for 50 years. And there, in captivity, they reflect upon their history and all the things that happened in the past and all the good things that the Lord had done for them. And they come to the realization that the disaster that they have suffered in the destruction of their country, the destruction of Jerusalem, is the fact that their leaders and their people were not faithful to the covenant. So that it kind of brings us uh, uh, to the end of the kingship in uh, Israel. There's a, and after that come two books in the Bible about a hundred years later. 
so you have a, a period there where they're in captivity for 50 years from 587 down to 537. At that point, there's a new kingdom comes in the Orient, <clears throat> namely the Persians. And the Persians destroy the Babylonians. So that the, you had the Assyrians, the Assyrians were destroyed by the Babylonians, then the Persians come along and destroy the Assyrians and they become then the empire. And Cyrus is a very enlightened ruler. He wants to send all these peoples back to their own countries that had been taken out of their countries by his predecessors, the Babylonians. So Cyrus comes out with a decree that all the people should go back to their own land. This is a godsend, one might say, for the Israelites because now they can go back to Jerusalem, they can go back to Palestine and rebuild their cities and uh, start being once again the people of God in the promised land where they belong. This account is um, covered in the Bible in two books called Ezra and Nehemiah. Here's a quote from the book of Ezra. Cyrus, king of Persia, says, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So, about the year 537, he sends the people back to, to uh, Jerusalem. So they go back. It's a very sad time. Everything is destroyed. And they begin, they try and begin to build the, uh, the temple. They run into problems with that. But eventually, they do uh, consecrate the new small temple in the year 515 before Christ. But there's not very much religious practice among these people. They don't know their religion very well. Later on in the and the next, uh, one of the next uh, emperors of Persia sends uh, this priest Ezra over there to restore the religion in Jerusalem. And so Ezra uh, goes around 450 before Christ. He's sent to restore the religious faith of the Jewish people that are living in Jerusalem. So Ezra is a priest. He's a, like a Levite connected with the temple. At that time, there's no wall around Jerusalem yet, and there's still kind of uh, open to their enemies. So Ezra restores the religion of the, um, of the Jews. And it's about this time that the Jewish religion really comes into uh, play as it was known in the time of Christ uh, when, he when he was born, when he was uh, uh, preaching. This is the, the, uh, the Judaism that existed at that time and still exists is traced back to the priest Ezra and one of the noblemen, Nehemiah. Now, Ezra, he said, like, Ezra is responsible for the restoration of the purity of the Jewish religion. One of the things was they were very much opposed to marriage, intermarriage with the pagan women around there or allowing their daughters to marry the sons of the pagans around them. They made great strides in stopping that. And Nehemiah was a nobleman who was sent by the emperor to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. That was an important thing. You had to have a fortress in those days so you could protect yourself. Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah was a nobleman and a builder. So he brings resources with him, and he's a great leader. He organizes the people, gets them to work, 
And in a relatively short space of time, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, much to the consternation of the enemies surrounding them, who up till that time could pretty much uh, go to Jerusalem and, and do whatever they wanted. But once they had the city surrounded with these impregnable walls, then they were safe. So you have then the, these two people, we're talking about the 5th century, um, <clears throat> these two people, Ezra and uh, Nehemiah, one in the religious domain and the other in the political social domain, that is Ezra and Nehemiah in the political social domain, they are the ones that constructed the, the Judaism, uh, the, the Jewish religion uh, that was kind of a theocracy from then on. That is, that it was the high priest of the temple was pretty much also not only the re leader of the religion, but he was also the, uh, the head of the state. Uh, he, he solved the uh, social problems, and he was the leader, the governor of the people that were there. There weren't very many people in Jerusalem at that time because it was devastated. It was like, you see some of these pictures of some of the German cities after the Second World War, like Cologne, just uh, ruins. And so now people didn't want to go there. They lived out in the country, and Nehemiah uh, kind of requested that one out of every ten men move to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. So this is... The uh, kind of the situation that you have in the Jewish people, there's no king, there's no successor of David, there's confidence on the part of the people and of Ezra, this, the Messiah will come, God will be faithful to his promises. God always fulfills his promises, and uh, eventually there's going to come a Messiah to Jerusalem who will be the, uh, the, the descendant of David, and will be the savior of the people, and he's the one who will restore the glory to Israel, such as it was in the beginning. So this is the kind of like the last uh, the book that you have from this time in the history of Israel of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is around 450 before Christ. <laughs> Immaculate Heart of Mary. Amen.